Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And um, <clears throat> I don't know what it's like in your area, but in Minnesota, we finally have a little rain, and it's cooling off and feeling like uh, fall is moving in to capture us here really quick. For those of you that are new to the show, i just like to give people a little bit of history about Alzheimer's Speaks. We're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. And we believe here that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can remove the stigma attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose. Together, we can help everyone understand the true needs and remove the myths and um, the isolation that is created for so many families and friends living in our communities. At our core, Alzheimer's Speaks believes collaboratively we're going to win this battle, and I know that we're making a big impact um, here on our platforms, and that is due to you. All of your likes and clicks and shares are making a huge difference. You're getting information out to your sphere of influence, and the more information that is readily available, the more likely people are going to grab it and run with it and tap into it when they need it. And that is such a critical, critical piece of this disease. The denial, as we know, is so heavy. So I want to thank you each for helping us get that information out to the people in need. Uh, You can always go to our website and get more information on our blog, our webinars, which is called Dementia Chats, where our experts actually are living with the diagnosis. Um, Here on the radio show, you can go to the resource uh, directory, our YouTube channel, or get our free tools all at www.alzheimerspeaks.com. Also, for anyone out there who has a story about dementia, maybe you're diagnosed, maybe you're caring for someone with dementia, uh, maybe you have a business that is helping those with dementia, or you've written a book or a film or whatever it might be, Um, how are you advocating? How are you making the world better? Let us know. We would love to hear from you. We're always looking for guests, and Alzheimer's Speaks is about raising everyone's voice. So please join us and um, letting us know your story. I always like to also give a shout-out to a few special organizations that are really dear to my heart um, first, I'd like to mention HealthStar Home Health, um, an amazing company here in Minnesota. They're going to be at our state fair. They're going to be doing memory screenings for the second year in a row, which was absolutely unbelievable last year, the contacts that they made. And they're also helping us launch a beautiful film called His Neighbor Phil, which is absolutely the most realistic film I have seen to date regarding um, regarding living with dementia and what families go through. So visit them out 
at the Carol Levin um, building, uh, right off of Dan Patch and Cooper. Again, that's the Health Star Home Health booth. And you'll be able to get uh, a memory screening if you're interested, resources on dementia, as well as learn more about this film, His Neighbor Phil. I would be amiss if I didn't talk um, about Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the association of all Alzheimer's associations around the world. So not only can you find the association closest to you, but you can also find out global information and research that's going on. There are also different types of dementia, like Lewy body and frontal temporal lobe, vascular dementia. So search information on those specific sites as well. And um, aphasia, which has to do with, um, with speaking. Uh, that association has some wonderful tips on how to interact with someone who's having some speech problems. And there are heavy needs for trial and research. So check out the Alzheimer's team on Facebook, or again, you can uh, see one of their um, graphics right on Alzheimer's Speaks homepage. Click on that, take a short survey, and see if you might be a ready candidate for one of the clinical trials. In order for us to find a cure, we have to be able to um, do these trials. So they are a critical, critical piece. Um, before I introduce our first guest, I do want to give two shouts out to um, the Twin Cities Hit Show, which is an online radio show broadcast right here in the Twin Cities on a live and social Monday through Thursday at 930 and each day you'll hear hilarious commentary about the latest news from your host, Rusty Gatenby. He's a comedian uh, with Chuck uh, Gallup, and they do and say things on the local morning show that uh, can't or, or won't, you know, you won't normally hear. So listen in and learn. They do a lot. Uh, they just do a great job. I was able to sit in when I first came over to a live, live and social on their show, and it was it was just really fun and very, very upbeat. Um, the other um, the other thing I want to do one last shout out to is Apples to Apples, and Apples to Apples is a sports show featuring uh, the father and son team of Scott and Drew Applebaum, and find out if father really knows best. Visit AliveAndSocial.com and hear this fun and lively little banter every week between apples to apples. So with no further ado, let me introduce our guest here today. Some of you are probably familiar with Anthony Cirillo. He is extremely well known, uh, especially here in the US. Um, did you know that there's almost 40 million people at the age of 65 and over in the United States? Um, and in America, 50 and older population is going to reach over a million this year. These are statistics that flow easily off Anthony's lips. Um, he really fell into his mission and his advocacy working with the elderly when he started performing in nursing homes. And he has turned into this passionate advocate um, that has done just a lot of a lot of advocacy, volunteer work, research, training, speaking, and entertaining uh, to seniors um, and caregivers alike. And he helps lead them through life on his platform of educated aging, which covers physical, emotional, and financial levels. He's a gifted singer and performer, 
and he's been in Nashville, and he's sung all around the country, and he uses his performing gifts in his keynote speeches and um, press engagements. He's really an experienced leader in the healthcare industry and one who knows how to navigate the industry as a whole. He understands the seniors and the caregivers' perspectives and their needs, and he is he's just a really bright light um, in terms of helping them live with dignity and purpose. So welcome, Anthony. How are you today? I'm great, Lori. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled that you, you have taken the time out of your day to be with us. Um, I always like to start out asking each one of our guests if they have been personally touched by dementia, either you know via a friend or family member. Yes, and uh, so I am a family caregiver for my mother, and she has all her cognition, but she lives in an independent living community where um, there's others of her friends who I've been able to, my mom's been there about, oh, maybe 18 months. My sister passed in January 2014, and we moved mom up here. And I've noticed a lot of her friends who I first met have been declining over time, and it's kind of an interesting thing to experience and, and watch. And, uh, you know, it really does call to the fact that um, no matter what the setting of care, and I know the general consumer a lot of times puts all of these groups and groups it under one umbrella, but uh, that you can find uh, dementia and Alzheimer's uh, at all levels. And so, uh, so my closest has been kind of observing mom's friends that we you know my wife's family has experienced some uh, some dementia and alzheimer's with her aunts uh, or one aunt particularly died uh, from from alzheimer's and uh, and of course my work through the dementia action alliance i've just made some great friendships with people and have uh, you know been able to witness it firsthand Wonderful. Um, Anthony, can you tell our listeners, you know, how you became involved in elderly issues and what you're, what you're trying to achieve uh, with, sure. with your business? Well, I, I was a healthcare professional back in Philadelphia, so I worked in hospitals and healthcare, and, and, and pretty much, you know, still is a big part of what I do. But it wasn't necessarily, it might intersect with seniors now and then, but it wasn't necessarily a senior uh, mission. But I was also a, a lifelong entertainer, and uh, as you alluded to in the intro, uh, you know, kind of semi-professional. And But you, you kind of get tired and burned out on, on nightclubs and that kind of living. And I went into a nursing home one day and started uh, singing. And when I left Philadelphia, I was actually doing 100 performances a year uh, part-time. And it really just crept up on me that I was uh, getting a lot of fulfillment, but also giving a lot of fulfillment as well. But the interesting thing that happened was that, you know, when I was in a band, I was just a performer. Uh, I mean, I was just a, a singer and a guy who played an instrument. When I went into, uh, you know, nursing and assisted living, I became a performer. And there's a nuance there because I became a performer because of the people who I were entertaining. And so I learned pretty quickly about, uh, you know, about wandering and things like that. And so when people would, you know, a person in, in, the, uh, in the home would come up to me mid, mid you know, uh, song and uh, be there, you know, at first you're not quite sure what to do, but over time you learn to accept them where they're at and to uh, embrace them. And, and if they want to stay up there for the whole program, uh, uh, so be it. And so it, it really has, uh, and I've learned so much from elders just from the performance aspect 
And uh, and so, you know, over time, I've kind of developed this, uh, as you mentioned, this platform about educated aging. I'm really an advocate that people need to prepare for aging sooner in life, that it comes down to th- three areas, and you really need all three. And the first is your physical health, you know, how you take care of yourself. That, you know, when you're younger is going to impact how you age. I talk a lot about, you know, I go into uh, some places, and, and people are there not because age caught up to them, but they didn't keep up you know, with their own selves, and so that's one piece, but then you can't have that without understanding how all this is paid for, and there's enough financial professionals and others who talk about that, but I, I talk about it as in a combination of things, and so, you know, there's so many misconceptions about how things are paid for, and even even with increased levels of people putting into their retirement uh, savings, which is great, uh, they're thinking they could use that for cruises, and they may need it for their health care. And then what I call emotional aging, and, and we may cover that a little bit later, but it's, it's what are these things that I've learned from elders about living a quality life as you age, even in the places that the general public most associates with death. And, and so you can learn so much about their resiliency and their ability to bounce back. And, you know, you learn those types of lessons, it's going to serve you well as you get older. Definitely, definitely. Now, you have on uh, your website a video about... Esther, and kind of, you know, how your mission with elders was really solidified. Can you share with our audience that story? Sure, and it, it's, a, it's a big part of when I, when I speak. Uh, so Esther, when I first came down to the Carolinas, uh, so I'm originally from Philadelphia, moved down to the Carolinas 14 years ago, and, um, you know, as I was starting my own consulting business, I was kind of uh, also going and entertaining because uh, obviously you start a new business, you're a little slow in the beginning, and I went up to Hickory, North Carolina, and I met Esther. And, um, you know, Esther, I tell people, became my designated heckler uh, for my shows because uh, Every show is different, and uh, and when I uh, uh, every month I have a different uh, theme, and some of it's obvious, and some of it's not. So Memorial Day, you might do you know the traditional uh, military salutes and things like that. But in November, I'll do a song like Pennies from Heaven, and 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 Esther would ask, well, "What's that have to do with anything with November?" And I said, "Well, it's National Accountants Day," and of course, you know, your listeners are probably rolling their eyes, and Esther was rolling her eyes, and so obviously over time we became really fast friends, and so. One day, um, the activity director asked me to uh, go visit Esther in the hospital with her after a performance. And so I didn't really think anything of it. So the performance was done. We went over to the hospital. And on the way, the activity director said, oh, by the way, Esther's in the coronary care unit. She actually died and was revived a few days ago, and, and she wants you. And, of course, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, what's that all about? So... We get there, and Esther's there, and her daughter's there, and Esther <laughs> starts flirting with me mercilessly, much to the embarrassment of her daughter. But Esther wants one thing for me, and she wants me to sing for her. Uh, but she doesn't just want any song. She wants a beautiful song, Because He Lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Except there was one problem, as I told Esther. I said, Esther... I don't know that song. I said, I'm from South Philadelphia. I said, and when we come down our steps in the morning, we have a picture of the Lord on one wall and a picture of Frank Sinatra on the other. And I said, I sing those types of songs. And so I, I sang, eventually got around to singing Unforgettable for her, and she was unforgettable. But I said, I'm going to go learn that song, and I did. And I have a little studio, and I mixed up a CD, one CD with that Because He Lives, three minutes, uh, you know, one song. Sent it over to the assisted living. She was back there, and uh, you know, I pretty much thought all was well with the world. Uh, but then a few weeks later, um, 
Sherry, the activities person, called me and said, oh, Esther's in hospice. And then it was a short time after that, Esther had passed away. Now, I don't necessarily make it a habit of going to funerals of people who I've interacted with in different settings, but Esther's uh, was calling me for some reason, and I did go to the funeral. And when I, I walked in, of course, the, the song on the program was Because He Lives, and uh, Esther's daughter came up to me, and she started crying. And she hadn't cried up until that point. And she told me that, and others told me that. And she said, did you hear about my mother's last day of life? And I said, I, I didn't. So evidently what happened is that um, her daughter played my CD with Because He Lives over and over and over again. Eventually her daughter you know, knelt down next to her mother and started singing in her ear with me uh, on a recording and telling her to let go. And, and Esther died that day. And, you know, I tell people that, um, and, and we've had conversations offline about this, that even as challenging sometimes to, to be an advocate and on a mission, um, you know, uh, and sometimes you say, ma'am, am I getting anywhere? Am I doing anything? And, and you have doubts sometimes, but all I have to do is be pulled back to, and there's more stories of Esther like that, uh, and I'm sure in everybody who's, who's in this field. Uh, but for me, it's like, all right, you know, I, Esther's looking at me. I still have her thank you card for making that CD on my desk. I'm looking at it right now. And so every once in a while you pick it up, and, and you just you just can't run away from this even if you wanted. Wow, what a powerful story. And I, I can imagine that's one that will never, ever leave you at all. Um, never. To, to know um, what a difference you made in, in someone's life, and then especially at the end of life, um, not only with with the person passing, but with their family. Um, an incredible, incredible story. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit uh, to something a, a little more up, um, though I think that that is just so touching, um, and I think uh, I think it's such a gift to be able to be with someone at the end of life as well. I know for many it's a very scary thing, but I've had the privilege of being involved with a few people, and it's just uh, it's a phenomenal experience um, and one uh, that I'll I will always remember um, each and every one that I've I've been blessed to be with. But I'd like to switch over to you have written a book um, and one that kind of has a, a, a funny title called "Who Moved My Dentures." Can you tell us about that book and? Um, you know, what, what is that all about? Well, essentially, it was a total offshoot of my singing. So I was meeting all these wonderful people in all of these places, and they all had a story. And so I wanted to write a book that told their story, but at the same time dispelled myths about aging, whatever they might be, like uh, general conceptions that, you know, these are places where the mentally ill are or whatever, you know, really high-level consumer uh, you know, perceptions that are probably still out there. And so it became a human interest story, uh, a book of human interest stories that dispelled different aspects of, of aging, caregiving, healthcare, whatever it might be. And at first the title was just a cute play on words because, you know, there's that cheese book out there. But I logically backed into why that title absolutely made sense because the cheese book was about resiliency in the workplace. And every single one of my stories was about an elder or elderly couples in some cases uh, who ha- faced the situation where they had to be uh, you know, resilient and figure out their life situation. Obviously, if they were in assisted living or nursing home uh, or were adult daycare, wherever I met them, uh, obviously there was something that changed in their life. 
and uh, and they had to bounce back from in order to live a quality life. And the people who I wrote about obviously led a quality life and and just illustrated some of the most more positive things that uh, you can about living in the places again that most people associate with going to die. And so that's kind of uh, you know it was just a uh, cute you know being a marketing guy a cute title uh, that was catchy but then actually made sense when you thought about it. That's a that's a great a great and interesting story in terms of you know how you moved music into a book and uh, you know uh, connected connected with people's stories and stuff. It's um, and it's a fun catchy title too for people uh, to be able to relate to. Now you've done a lot in terms of training and trying to shift culture and stuff, and you explore like 13 different myths about long-term care facilities. Can you can you talk a little bit about those myths? Because I think that that's a great topic for our audience. People are always interested in what if what if we have to make a move? What do we need to look for? What do we need to know? Because we don't even know where to start. Right, and there, and there's certainly enough advice books out there, and and trend, and with healthcare becoming so more transparent about how to you know find, look, and maybe even evaluate, and we can certainly get into that. But these are more high level types of things that uh, I surface. So, for example, and some of it's just a mindset uh, culture shift, maybe. So, you know, the first thing is pretty obvious, but it, you know, these are places that you go to live, not to die. And uh, there is a woman in the book, Jean, who went. Uh, into a CCRC, and, you know, she walked in and uh, thought, uh, wow, this looks like a hotel in New York. Now, we know that the wallpaper is not indicative of the quality of care, but nonetheless, she was looking at uh, at going in with optimism, with the glass half full. And this was a, a mild-mannered housewife who was widowed young and uh, raised her sons and kept to herself, and she blossomed in this place because she participated uh, in uh, all the activities and just uh, really found herself, uh, you know, and repurposed herself uh, at a time when most people said, you're going there, well, you know, see you later. So, so that, that's certainly one thing. And another thing, uh, I mean, I explore lots of different things. I mean, one thing uh, that uh, is kind of an interesting subject these days is sexuality and, and aging and, you know, the ability to couples to live together in these places, but also uh, for romance that happens. I mean, my, my mother is in a, uh, like I said, an independent living, and, and you know, you kind of witnessed what happens. And it, it's, uh, it's kind of cute, but it's also a very serious issue. I mean, there's, there's been cases... Um, uh, I didn't write about this one, but I, I, you know, certainly heard about it in the news. Where, for example, a, a son walked into uh, a room and his father was uh, engaged, so to speak, with, with uh, somebody else in the facility, and uh, and the son kind of freaked out and and took uh, took his father out of the uh, out of the assisted living. But what was interesting about all that uh, when I talk about uh, this is that the woman who did absolutely have dementia also started deteriorating after he was re- you know removed from there and went somewhere else and it really gets to i think uh you know even in still Alice i think the i think one of the last things she says is that you know when all else is gone there's still love and obviously there's there was still love in this woman and a loss that was felt and she became depressed and dehydrated and so not many people think about sexuality and aging uh, unless they're making snide jokes about it, you know, that kind of thing. So that, that, that's another one. Um, 
and you can certainly tell me when to, to go and stop here, but I, you know, friendship, um, you know, that's another thing. And, you know, I really think with all of the settings of care shifting, and they certainly are. It's so dynamic anymore about uh, where people are getting care and nursing homes becoming like hospitals and assisted living becoming like nursing homes. That I think as much as people talk about aging in place and all of the things that you can do to do that from the home monitoring to home health care to telehealth to whatever it might be, retrofitting your house and, and all these things, I think the one thing that uh, all of these places offer uh, is is the idea of the social aspect and the friendship. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons uh, my my mom lived with my sister in Florida, but when we brought her here, I mean, we didn't physically have the first floor set up for her to live with us. But we also said you have 150 friends at this place, and, uh, and certainly that's, um, you know, something that is really um, – so it needs to be accounted for when you're looking at this because, um, you know, my mother-in-law, who is in fine health, but she's close to 85 and just lost her husband, is still living in the condo she shared, and she's very isolated. Now, they have a big family, but they don't always get there. And so she's in many ways more isolated than my mom. And, and, uh, and so there's really a lot to be said about the friendship value, no matter what your cognitive ability uh, in, in these places. So that, that's another one I explore. Um, obviously, uh, you're, um, you're familiar with activity professionals and all the things that they do. And I think people think that there's nothing to do in these places. And then if there is something to do, it's about, they throw you in front of a TV or they, or it's bingo. Uh, and, uh, and in reality, um, and, uh, because I write for about.com, I have one person who writes for me about activities and I, she's constantly surfacing these best practices that people are, are doing either. Uh, how to develop one-to-one -one activities for people, or the you know more and more. We of course, being a musician, I'm in tune with the memory and music and all the different things uh, that go on there. So there's there's really a lot of things, and it's becoming more person-centered and person-directed as we move to a culture where we get to know uh, the person who's coming in and uh, be able to kind of tailor uh, activities. So that's that's kind of another thing. I touch a little bit on abuse uh, issues, but. Um, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, it's not as prevalent maybe as it was before, and that's because a lot more, again, transparency and all kind of other touchy issues in in, uh, in nursing homes with, uh, you know, cameras and, and whatnot. So we talk about that. And uh, so I, I, I hit on the finances a little bit because I still think people think Social Security or Medicare are, are going to pay for, you know, your care if you, if you need this advanced care. And, you know, Medicare uh, kicks in maybe for 100 days if you're hospitalized. But other than that, if you're not saving, um, and, you know, or getting long-term care insurance, which is harder to get and more expensive to get because few people are buying it, um, you know, that's uh, you really need to start, you know, when you're saving for in your 401K, you really also need to be saving about, you know, paying for your, your uh, health care part of your retirement because you might have Medicare, but it's not going to pay for the long-term care. Yeah, <clears throat> very interesting. You know, we use the term, you know, aging in place, but maybe it should be living in place or living in peace even um, in, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, that peace and comfort that even if someone is moved outside the home, they still have that right to that peace and comfort of which we call home. And that comes in a lot of different um, angles from being active to just relaxing and um, absorbing some downtime. 
uh, but I think it's I think it's a real critical critical piece. I also think that you know long term care is scary as it can be for a lot of people. Um, some of the advantages are that social interaction um, that we as family members cannot give. We're a spouse, we're a child, <clears throat> we're a grandchild, we're a friend, um, but we're we're not necessarily a peer. I guess a friend would fall into that category, but family really doesn't. Um, even though I can say my mom is my best friend, it's a different dynamic than a girlfriend, um, you know, or a spouse would have. And so, you know, for me, I, I remember the very first time, and my mom lived in a nursing home for 14 years, the very first time I walked in and I was just about brought to tears by an activities director doing a very simple activity of just sharing a, a really colorful magazine and letting all the residents reminisce. And they were so engaged, and I never would have done that as a daughter. And, and even if I did, it would have been different. And I saw the power and the beauty of, that, of the peers and that social interaction, and I, I think that that's really important for people to, to remember, um, it, you know, if yeah. a move is, is going to take place. Would you say that you're, you're pro or, or con against nursing homes? And I know that that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> well, I, I am um, I'm more of um, not of, of people realizing don't lump all of this into one. So, you know, uh, when, you know, my friends, you know, and, and I'm a boomer, and if you talk about these issues, I mean, they just talk about going to the home, you know, and then it could be nursing home assisted living. They don't make a distinction. And I think it's more about is the setting of care appropriate. And we certainly know that. Uh, in independent living, there's probably people who need to be in assisted living, and assisted living is probably people who need to be in in uh, nursing homes. And again, the dynamic is shifting. There was a New York Times article in April that basically the headline was uh, "Nursing homes are becoming hospital-like." And of course, we know that they're offering rehab services and things like that. But uh, you know, more of the uh, care is being pushed out of hospitals, and you know, readmissions are a big issue. And uh, in hospitals and nursing homes play a part in whether people go back or not. But, you know, I think it's more about the, the setting because then more acute people are, you know, I've witnessed this, uh, you know, in assisted living are, are in there inappropriately. Now, some, some places are, you know, licensed to be able to take care of it, these different levels, but a lot of times they're not, but they're, they're kind of hanging on to these folks because of, of various reasons, financial and otherwise. So I think it's more about, um, you know, the setting of care. And I think, again, I always circle back, uh, you know, you can have, you can have all of the services, you know, brought to you in your, in your home. And you, you know, you read about Uber getting into senior transportation and all these types of things. But I think unless you live in what they call these NORCs, naturally occurring retirement communities where all of your friends kind of are still around and all the services kind of come to that community and it's more in big urban areas in New York and, and things like that, uh, you're going to miss the socialization part. So I'm really more about is it the right setting and uh, people there, you know, for the right reasons in the, in the appropriate setting. Good answer. I like that answer. Um, I think so many times people fall either in the black or white scenario, and it's, it's so much more colorful than that, uh, especially with all the choices that we have now um, when it comes to care. Now, I know that one of the things that you're starting to talk about now is going into hospitals and helping them become dementia-friendly. And can you tell sure. us a little bit about your work uh, with that? I know Gary LeBlanc has his wristband program 
that he's doing um, with some hospitals, but I think yours is a little different. Yeah, and, and that program is just a great program. So, yeah, because I've worked on the hospital side for a long, long time, I'm looking at it from a, a few different aspects. And, again, this is about some of the movements that are going on in health care that I think would benefit readers. I mean, you know, with hospitals, again, a lot of hospitals own, at least in in the areas that I consult in, uh, in the geographically, own their physician practices. And with the shift in, in health care happening the way it is, they talk about physician practice being certified medical homes, and it's kind of a good descriptor, the home where, you know, this is the central hub where you're going to get your care, and this is where you kind of report back to and get your guidance, you know, at this medical home. And they and they talk about issues like population health management, you know, where you get a, a chronic disease category like uh, congestive heart failure, diabetes, and managing that with a team that's focused on it so that you can uh, be well, obviously in a changing scenario where you don't get reimbursed for everything that you do, but for the quality that you produce, that, uh, that's a win-win on both sides. But as I wrote in a, a recent blog, that I don't think dementia, including Alzheimer's, uh, is a fit in the population health medical home because Obviously, there's no cure. And so the folks there, uh, you know, until a person deteriorates to a point where they're then manifesting other health care conditions, then they fit into that nice, neat population health model, and now we can get them in here. And so I think, now I was talking to a physician yesterday at, at a hospital I'm consulting with about kind of the, the gaps in, in care in their medical homes, and this was a a, a pretty robust uh, set of practices that are all certified medical homes. It's a big achievement, and I mainly reads their quality is kind of ramped up, but they had done no kind of dementia-friendly analysis of, uh, of, of the, um, you know, their, whether how it's to communicate or in the environment or pretty much anything that way. They've just been focused on, you know, kind of uh, uh, moving into this new phase of healthcare and reimbursement. So I think that's one nuance is that, it's, it really has to start in the physician offices, and we need much more education in the physician offices about these types of issues. But then as you move into uh, a um, hospital, uh, or any business for that uh, matter, but we talk a lot in the hospital space about that the patient experience begins with the employee experience. And so if you have employees who are engaged and uh, in, in the workforce and happy in their uh, in their jobs, and, and of course we know the amount of burnout, especially in the long-term care side, uh, and, the, and the shift and the need for continually replenishing the workforce, uh, that uh, if you have happy employees in some respects, you're going to have uh, probably a better experiences for the people you're taking care of. And one of the things, nuances I'm trying to explore is that what if we looked at, you know, care, uh, caregiving in the workplace, uh, be, as a, as a uh, kind of road to improving uh, employee experiences because six out of ten people uh, in the workforce are family caregivers and the latest AARP um, uh, NAC study actually said 25%, which I was surprised, are uh, millennials. And so this is a big issue and it's actually a societal issue that uh, we have to talk about. And there's, so there's groups like REACT, Respect the Caregiver's Time, that are popping up where major companies uh, like Pfizer and CBS and the Cleveland Clinic are saying, we're stepping up, we're going to recognize family caregivers, we're going to start, you know, trying to destigmatize this because I'm sure you talk a lot about 
you know, uh, when somebody is diagnosed, uh, they're all you know, automatically, uh, and, uh, you know, Richard Taylor, God rest his soul, that recently passed, talked a lot about, you know, once you're identified, you're put in a box and you're stigmatized. And so it's, it's the same with the family caregiver. So I think, I think we have some work, if you're talking dementia-friendly about, uh, and the employee piece is that. And then I think from a hospital point, you can get to all of the process improvements, the tactics like patient family advisory councils and, you know, does a state have the CARE Act so you can start documenting the caregivers uh, more and, you know, patient portals and being able to communicate better. But I think you have to start with culture and, um, you know, what is the culture toward older people? I uh, wrote a blog for, um, I think it was caring.com a few years ago, and I talked about age bias in terms of, you know, the normal things we think about, somebody's getting uh, slower or their hearing is going. But I talked about uh, something from Princeton University that uh, uh, was, uh, they labeled kind of prescriptive prejudice. And it was the idea in three areas that uh, people have these prejudices, succession, that people should move aside, um, you know, from uh, older people should move aside from higher paying jobs to let young people take them, so to speak. And the idea of identity, older people should not attempt to act younger than they are. And the third one was consumption, that, that seniors should not consume, this one just kind of really irks me, but seniors should not consume scarce resources such as health care. And if you go in, what I tell, you know, when I'm consulting, I tell people, you know, how you perceive is impacts how you care, and how you care impacts how people talk about you. And that's word of mouth, and that's your brand, and it's all related. The experience is the marketing, and so it becomes also the revenue. And so these are all important issues, and you know, a lot of this can start just with uh, in, in the language you use and the marketing, and, and yet these are departments that by and large are staffed by very young people who don't have as much appreciation for maybe some of the issues that come with aging. I would agree, but I also think our younger population is really watching their parents and and identifying what they will and won't do in the future, and they're really sticking to it. <clears throat> and they're they're going to be I think they're going to be a really force to reckon with, uh, which I think is great um, because they don't want to work you know ten zillion hours like so many of us boomers do. Um, you know they want to have a life too, and I, I've also seen them care. Um, very consciously, um, but they do it in a different fashion. Um, I think they're smarter about it, and um, and they want more balance with it. And I think that that's something that boomers kind of gave up on, and um, and didn't didn't find that balance quite so well. So I think it'll be really interesting in the workplace um, how that shuffles out. And um, and I, and I don't think it's anything that that any one company should ignore. This is. This is a huge, big force. Um, caregivers is the largest group we've ever had to deal with because everybody is a caregiver. There's not one of us who is not in some fashion. <clears throat> it's just when it's really going to hit home and challenge our ability to perform at our current level. Um, you know, we'll make we'll make the difference there. But we're we're all choosing to care, even if um, even if it's not one specific person who happens to be ill. It's how are we interacting with our families? How are we interacting with our friends, with our coworkers, with strangers, with our clients? You know, they're all choices, and we have forgotten um, that th- those really should be conscious choices, and not just automatics. There, so I, 
I applaud you for your work in trying to get people to move beyond that kind of customer service um, mentality and really get person-centered based um, in their care culture, if it's in healthcare or, uh, you know, a different work environment, um, understanding sure. that everybody is really impacted by this. Um, one of your programs is really about being person-centered care, and um, and, and I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more about obstacles and op- opportunities in terms of shaping our care culture, you know, for aging care. Sure. And and just, um, you know, getting back a little bit to the, the, the whole culture of, of customer service versus resident center, and I mean a lot, especially more transparency in, in long-term care, they, there's, the, you know, the, these CAP surveys, these surveys that you get when you go to the doctor and, and somebody will send you a survey to fill out in the hospitals the same way. You know, there's kind of a couple camps that uh, with my work in, in patient experience, you know, and, and you sometimes find out that people, some, some are just chasing scores. And so, uh, you know, a big thing in hospitals uh, is noise reduction. You know, we, so we have to reduce the noise to get that bigger score so that we're, we're graded better and we look better. And so it's more about following the rules. And, and sometimes we get into cultures where, you know, we map the experience ad nauseum and then we script responses. And, you know, there was a telling quote from Toby Cosgrove at a, a patient experience conference in Cleveland. He's the president of the Cleveland Clinic. And he, he said one, at one of the conferences, the real measures of patient experience come from the heart and really knowing people. And so when you you know you talk about kind of intake into assisted living or home health i think it's about following some of the examples out there that are getting to know the people better and so you know i, I cite in some of my presentations the living history project from a woman named Sheila Brunet uh, where volunteers actually go and um, uh, you know talk to people about their life story now i think obviously there might be some challenges with, with dementia alzheimer's patients and maybe uh, caregivers uh, you know family caregivers need to participate in that, but all of that is about helping to get people in the, who are caring uh, to get to know them better and understand some of their backstory. And uh, I think sometimes we, we miss um, backing away and simplifying uh, some of our approaches. Uh, I attended, this is kind of fascinating, I attended a, a patient experience conference locally, and it was the three of the healthcare systems there, and then somebody had uh, actually turned out to be an incredible idea because when you first looked at it, you said, what's this guy doing here? And it was a franchisee from Chick-fil-A. And you said, okay, what's he got to do with patient experience? But what he talked about was uh, a core, he called it the core four, the core four things that um, they do at Chick-fil-A that you, you are sometimes overtly aware of and sometimes not. And, you know, two of them are pretty easy, make eye contact and, and smile. So that, that they're easy. But the other two, the first one was assess the situation. So somebody's, you know, and I give the example of, you know, the, you know, in the spring, uh, the little league teams are playing, and you know, they're uh, after the game is over, there's a winner and a loser, but they're all getting treated to Chick Fil A, and they come in, and you, you kind of sense. Uh, from how they're acting, you know, maybe how the situation worked out on the field. And so accordingly, you kind of can say, well, what's my approach here? And then the other thing he talked about was maintaining the relationship. And that meant, you know, if you go into a a Chick-fil-A, and it's my one vice of fast food, uh, you know, somebody will greet you uh, invariably. And if you dine in, so to speak, uh, somebody will probably come over. It might be the same person who waited on you who, uh, we'll clean up the, your table, even though we're quite capable of, you know, throwing the trash out. But 
as you're leaving, somebody will say goodbye, and if you look back, it's probably the same person. And that's what they mean by maintaining the relationship. And this is in a, you know, in a, in a fast food uh, service that essentially, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, its its product speaks for itself because I, you know, the lines are wrapped around the corner, and you know, and and any Chick Fil A I've seen in my area, and so, but they're simple types of things. And when I talk about changing the culture of aging care, I, I talk on a you know, I, uh, again, I, I sort of 50,000 foot and then work your way down level because I'm all about connecting the dots between, you know, there's so many silos. So hospitals operate in silos. Within hospitals, there's silos. But you look at the whole continuum of care on the long-term services and support and, uh, you know, starting from uh, adult day uh, to, you know, home health and hospice, there's silos within silos. I mean, there's two or three different industry associations just for the nursing home assisted living uh, and each has their own agendas and and uh, and competing uh, priorities and so you know sometimes you have to uh, you know step away and say how are we all working together and, and look at some of these big issues so certainly language that we use and the marketing and the media that uh, are you know out there and how they portray um, you know, uh, elders and caregivers and people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And, uh, you know, a lot. I talk a lot about caregivers and the statistics around them and family caregivers in the workplace and the stigmatization of them and, and how we need to kind of, uh, you know, look differently at that. And I also talk a lot, and this is, this is something that um, I don't think a lot of my healthcare colleagues are understanding. You know, when I was talking earlier about population health and medical homes. There's also something in healthcare called accountable care organizations. It's the idea that there's going to be lots of different entities partnering together uh, to offer care uh, so that it's more seamless, uh, that the transitions are better, it's more coordinated, and eventually move to you know one payment. Of, they call it a bundled payment, where you'll get a bundle of money, and usually the hospital will be left up to their devices to then split it among uh, the other providers. But most of those experiments have been hospital to hospital, other hospitals that they may have been competing with or cooperating now, or uh, hospital to physician, or hospital to, in very rare cases, the nursing home. And um, you know, we have a great opportunity, the long-term care industry does anyway, to broaden the discussion because, you know, have you ever thought that the partner in, in, your, in the care is the bank teller or, you know, the people at the supermarket? Uh, you know, there's a Bloomberg article about how bank tellers are becoming, uh, you know, caregivers on the front lines of Alzheimer's because um, they're, I, they're seeing the behaviors, and especially if they're educated uh, around it, they're seeing things happen before anybody else does. I went to uh, the um, health affairs briefing, I think it was last year, on uh, the issue was the long tail of Alzheimer's, and uh, there was a medical ethicist from Penn there, and uh, he, he, he talked about his own father's diagnosis and the fact that the first time they figured out that something was wrong because the guy was messing up his checkbook. And so we don't realize that there's unlikely partners out there who we need to enroll, and these are going to be partners that we're not thinking of readily, at least in the health professions. And so uh, I think there's a, just a lot of thinking that has to be done and walls that need to be broken down. I mean, you know, starting dementia registries and then, you know, dementia friend programs and uh, things like that. So, you know, it's a general discussion to get people wrapped around that this is all connected and this isn't just a healthcare issue, it's a societal issue. 
I agree, and I think uh, people realizing, you know, where do people spend their time? You know, like in the grocery stores or the banks or the gas stations or uh, the restaurants. Those are the people who are really noticing the symptoms and can, you know, can help and want to help, but they need they need some guidance. And we also have to get families to start talking openly about this because we're in such denial, especially in this country with this disease, um, you know, called dementia. And and then people get offended if somebody tries to help because, oh, no, that's not us. And so we we really have to um, stop looking through, you know, rose-colored glasses and and stop being ashamed or feeling guilty. And, you know, a lot of us as family caregivers are trying to be dignified um, and um, be respectful to the person diagnosed when, when actually we're harming the type of care that they could get because we're trying to hide it. Um, where they could be treated even even better, you know, um, they could get better service if we were honest. And we haven't looked at it through that lens. And, and I think that that's a, an important thing that we need to do. Um, well, I can't believe we're almost running out of time here. We've got a little under, uh, a little over five minutes left here. Wow. So <laughs> I know time goes, time goes really, really fast. Um, you do a keynote entitled the meaning of life and you have kind of eight <laughs> points in that program. Can you share yep. with us a little bit about that program? Yeah, I'm actually giving that next week for the Alzheimer's Association of Charlotte, and I'll, I'll be the ending keynote. But I talk about, and again, it, you know, it's it's just fascinating uh, as I look back on on my career. It, this all again spawned from uh, singing to the book to the to the speech because it's really taking all the things I've learned. So I, I talk about the fact that uh, you know, what can we learn from elders? about living a quality life at the end of life and from elders who are in the places of most associate with death. I mean, that's kind of the, the thing. Uh, because if they're doing it, then we can be doing it. And the, one of the first, you know, the first thing I talk about is purpose, that they still have some kind of purpose. I talk about a woman named Ruth Ann who uh, was uh, uh, president of the Residence Council. What a thankless job that is. But she, and she did all kinds of other things in the place. And when I was interviewing her, she said, I, I pray to God for what my purpose is in life. And I just found that fascinating because here you are at 85 and you're still searching for purpose. And I tell family caregivers that, and including myself, I have to remind myself that you have a great purpose you are in a great purpose right now, and you should realize that. This is an opportunity that you're only going to have probably once and that, you know, you need to look at it that way, but also that you need to take care of yourself and you need to keep your own dreams and wishes alive because you're not going to be a caregiver forever. So that's kind of point number one. I talk about, again, every point has a story, a song that goes with it, and then a study that I found that somehow backs up, you know, the point. So obviously the value of activity, and I talk about the blue zones across the world where people live to an older age and some of the things that uh, they exhibit from this idea of moving naturally, not necessarily uh, have to get on the treadmill this morning. It's just can I build movement into my day every day where it's going to help me? Uh, that uh, direct offshoot from the, the blue zones is, the, again, the whole uh, idea of friendship and socialization and of the fact that there's been studies around all of this that uh, show that, uh, you know, you can actually ward off and uh, at least uh, maybe delay and, uh, and at least live better with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia if you have social networks, uh, if you've had social networks, you know, earlier in life. 
Uh, I talk about lifelong learning. I talk about a protest group called the Raging Grannies that are out in, the, in Seattle who have nursing home and assisted living folks in their group who help them write parody songs. And, and so I said, you know, it, it's all about keeping your mind sharp. I talk about the power of humor and that um, many, in many ways the humor uh, has the same benefits of, of exercise. And I'll, I'll, have, uh, I'll have the crowd next week uh, uh, trying their best to do rock and robin and tweet and flap their wings like birds and uh, we'll give prizes. <laughs> uh, it should be kind of interesting. Uh, I talk about a great attitude, uh, you know, unconditional love, but I think you know, probably the most important point I think that we can learn is gratefulness. And uh, I, I dwell a lot on that, that, you know, the rate of depression in this country is like 9.6%, and uh, uh, in Nigeria, it's like 0.8%. They're, they're struggling for food and water, and we're engaged in this, what some people label existentialist despair. In other words, we worry about things we shouldn't really uh, have any reason to worry about. We need to, you know, be more grateful, and, and that's kind of how I am my day every day. I go to bed, and I think about these three things that I'm grateful for that day. Obviously, this will be one, uh, having been a guest on your show, and other things that I'm grateful for. And I think uh, if you can maintain gratefulness, and that's what I certainly learned because I've met enough people who are in, in uh, you know, where you say, there by the grace of God go I, that if we were in that situation, um, you know, where half their body's paralyzed, and yet they come up to me after a show and say, you know what, I look forward to every single day uh, uh, to get up and live my life. And it's like other people have just the opposite and say, I just want to die. So, uh, so that's, that's a gratefulness is, I think of all of them, that's the most important. I agree. And I, I think that that's something that we don't talk about much in this country. I, I think Oprah kind of brought it back, uh, you know, in the spotlight again and, uh, living in the moment and appreciating what we have instead of, you know, crying over the past, what we feel we lost or, crying over the future for what we think is coming. And, you know, we lose so much time, so much valuable time, and everyone will agree, you know, that we don't have enough time in a day, so we can't waste it. And um, the more we are grateful for, I think the more great things come our way with great. that. So, um, well, wonderful. There, You have so many different um, websites and stuff that people can go to reach you. Um, do you want to talk about the, the different social media platforms you have and what people can find on some of those? Because you've got some great, um, great video and stuff out there. One of them is the, the, um, the Robin, you know, when you get them tweeting and, <laughs> yes, and yes, flapping and stuff. So I mean, I have a YouTube channel, and if you got, I, I think you know, until I can consolidate, I am in the process of rebranding, and my 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 main website will be called theagingexperience.com, and people can go to that now to redirect to some like my, my current consulting site. But I have a blog that will route, roll into this new site, but right now it's called educatedaging.com. Obviously, just like my platform, educatedaging.com, and you'll be able to click on each one of my social networks from there, but you'll also read them my daily blogs that have you know, just diff different information about uh, different health studies and different things I encounter that can help us all just be aware and, and live a, a, you know, a, um, a better quality life. And uh, there's videos attached to those. But then it, it leads to all my social networks as well. So I, you know, I think you go there, you're going to pretty much find that. And when, when it goes to another site, it will redirect to that. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you for taking so much time with us uh, today. Uh, it's really been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show, Anthony, and we wish you the, the best of luck in the future, and keep up the great work. Lori, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to be on your show. Thank you. 
Um, for those of you that didn't listen to uh, last week's radio show, I would encourage you to do so. Um, we had the cast and some of the crew from the new dementia film coming out. Uh, it's going to be launched on the 27th, so next Thursday, called His Neighbor Phil. It was really kind of fascinating talking with some of the actors and the director and figuring out how the script got written and how the community of Zambroda, Minnesota, got behind this film, along with uh, certain sponsors. Next week on the 25th, I'm thinking we might do, I'm not for sure on this, but we might do an open mic. I haven't done one for a while, and that might be kind of fun to do. Um, On the 27th, I will also be out at the State Fair, so please stop by and see me at the Minnesota State Fair. Again, I will be at the Health Star um, home health booth in the CARE 11 Health Building just off of Dan Patch in Cooper. And we'd love to see you out there. Again, you'd have an opportunity to not only be interviewed, if you'd like, um, and tell your story and, and how you're affected by dementia or caregiving. Um, but you'll be able to get a lot of great resources and even get a memory screening, if you'd like, and then find out more about the film and where it will be. Uh, our last Dementia Chats was on the 11th which was, again, very interesting conversation. Um, all of our experts ha- are diagnosed with dementia. We talked about sleep issues, and that is recorded. That's on the website at Alzheimer Speaks. You can find it still on the homepage. Otherwise, you can always go to the About page for all the past sessions. And our next uh, Dementia Chats, again, those are all free, will be coming up on the 25th, and that'll be 11 o'clock Eastern 10 Central, 9 Mountain, and 8 Pacific Time, and that's 4 o'clock if you're over in London. Um, On the blog, what do we have there? Um, There's information about Richard Taylor's uh, memorial. It's going to be online, and it's going to be on the 19th. And um, there are times posted for all around the world, but I'm just going to note the times here for the U.S., So it looks like Eastern Time is at 5.30 p.m., Central 4.30, Mountain would be 3.30, and Pacific Time would be 2.30 then. Uh, But again, if you go to the blog, and again, you can get to the blog from from our website as well on that. I want to, again, do one last shout-out. I'm thrilled uh, to be with Alive and Social here, and uh, don't forget to listen to Apples to Apples and the Twin Cities hit show. And, uh, again, come on out to the State Fair on the 27th between 12 and noon. I'd love to see you at the CARE 11 building. Until next week, uh, have a blessed time. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.